Welcome, everybody, to the very last message in this series that we've been in, in the book of Daniel, where we have been talking about how to live by faith in a secular world, in a world that is increasingly hostile toward Christ and toward God's Word. And we've discovered several principles along the way. And this weekend, we're actually going to be talking about prophecy. That is, what did God reveal to Daniel about the future? And what is it from what God shares with Daniel that you and I can take away and use in our lives and in our family's lives, our friends' lives, as we face what oftentimes people call an uncertain future? For you and for me, however, it's not uncertain. There's a certainty we have about the future. And uh, that leads me to a principle that we're going to start out with, and that is simply this, that one does not need to speculate when the last days will begin. We are in them now. Now, you may be wondering to yourself, where do I get that from? How do I know that we are in the last days now? Well, that's why we're going to take a look at the book of Daniel, and we're going to do it from an overview perspective. You see, to understand the final chapters of Daniel's visions of the future, you really have to have a grip on the entire book. So the people at the Bible Project are so wonderful at sharing their resources. I thought it'd be better for me to use their drawings than my own. And if you have seen my drawings, you can understand why. And then secondly, I'm going to share some information with you as we get an overview from a world-class scholar, uh, Dr. Tim Mackey. So here we go. Let's start, first of all, with our banner. We've been talking about Daniel. And remember, Daniel is written to give hope to the people of his day and to us, a hope that will drive then in our lives a motivation to be faithful. Now, our story actually begins over in 1 Kings chapter 24. And in that passage of Scripture, we discover that Nebuchadnezzar has come into Jerusalem and he has ransacked the cities, taken away from the temple artifacts that were used in the worship of God. He's also taken away many people. And among the exiles is our man Daniel, who becomes known later as Belshazzar. They give him a Babylonian name. Hananiah, who becomes known as Shadrach. Mishael, who becomes known as Meshach. And Azariah, who becomes known as Abednego. And they are taken away. Now, what's interesting is that the first six chapters are about Daniel and his friends and what they endure and experience in a godless culture. And then chapters 7 through 12 have to do with a vision of the future. If you pan out from the whole picture, something that you'll discover that's very interesting is that the first chapter is written in Hebrew. Chapters 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 are in Aramaic, which was a cousin language to Hebrew and was uh, well understood by most of the ancient people. And then finally, chapters 8, 9, and 10 through 12 are in the Hebrew, and they serve to create a link for us. If you look at it from the big picture, what you discover is that chapter 2 and chapter 7 actually lead into chapter 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, and you'll see how this all fits together. And again, it's going to give us some insight into prophecy. So let's start with chapter 1. In chapter 1, Daniel and his friends are brought over to Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar wants to force them to change out their Jewish identity 
for a Babylonian identity, make them good Babylonians. And one of the ways of doing that was to get them to eat from the table of the king. Unfortunately, the table of the king was set up with food that went against the Torah. They're not supposed to eat that kind of food. And so Daniel and his friends protest, and they tell their supervisor, listen, let us follow the Torah, let us follow our normal diet, and you're going to see that, that we're going to be just as healthy, if not healthier, than the folks who are eating from the king's table. So the supervisor allows them to do that, and lo and behold, they end up healthier, they end up brighter, they end up stronger, and as a result of that, the king is very impressed with them, and they get exalted into some pretty high positions. That takes us then to chapter 2. And in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has this very strange and weird dream. He doesn't know what it means, and, he, and none of his wise men can tell him what it means. And so he's going to put them all to death, except Daniel goes to God with his three Hebrew friends. They pray and they say to God, God, what is the dream that you gave to Nebuchadnezzar? What is its meaning? And God gives them the answer. So Daniel comes before Nebuchadnezzar and he says, when you had your dream, you saw this massive statue made up of four different metals. You saw a head of gold. That's you, King Nebuchadnezzar. He said, following that was a, uh, a chest and arms of silver. That's, a, that's another kingdom that will come after you, the Medo-Persian Empire we know now. And then comes the um, uh, belly and thighs of bronze. That's going to be the Greek Empire. Then comes the leg, uh, legs of iron. That's the Roman Empire. And then the weakening lesser empire made up of a confederacy of some strong, some weak kings. Hence this idea of clay and iron being mixed together. And Daniel says, lo and behold, you saw a, a rock that was cut out of something, but not with human hands. And the rock comes and it smashes this statue. And what we discover from this dream is that God is telling Daniel and telling us that throughout history, there's going to be a train of kingdoms that follow Babylon. And at the very end, God's kingdom, because that stone turns into a mountain that fills the earth, God's kingdom will remain and be established for ever and ever. And so the question that begins to percolate in the mind is, when is that kingdom going to come? But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Let's go to chapter 3. In chapter 3, we've got the story of the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are told to bow down before this hideous idol that Nebuchadnezzar has established and to worship it, and they refuse to do it. He gets so angry, he says, they're going to put you in this furnace. And, and you'll be killed. And they say to him, basically, and I'm paraphrasing, do what you want to us. Either God will rescue us from it or perish in it, but we're not going to bow down to your image. So he throws them in. And if you know the story there, what happens is he looks, Nebuchadnezzar looks into the furnace and he sees this other figure with the three that he put in there, one like a son of a God, one like a God. And he calls them out and the three come out and not a hair on their body or their clothes is singed. And he praises God, and once again, he exalts the friends. Now we come to chapters 4 and chapters 5. We're going to look at as a pair, and that's because they're both dealing with one central theme, and that is this whole issue of pride, which, as we learned a couple of weeks ago, is the mother of all sin to begin with. First of all, there's Nebuchadnezzar's pride. He has a strange dream. He doesn't know what it means. He asks Daniel about it. There's this massive tree that gets cut down. And Daniel says, I hate to tell you this, king, but God's going to cut you down to size. 
and you better humble yourself and maybe God will show you mercy. And Nebuchadnezzar does not humble himself. Instead, one day when he's gloating about how great his palace and his kingdom is, he's reduced to a beast-like animal. And for the next seven years, he's mad. He goes mad until finally his sanity is restored and he repents and he actually writes a beautiful kind of psalm of praising and worshiping and recognizing who God is. Now, the sad thing is that when you go to chapter 4, his, what would be his grandson, okay, Belshazzar does, not, Belshazzar does not understand what happened to his grandfather is about to happen to him. He doesn't learn from his grandfather's mistakes and sins. And so he sees the writing on the wall, many, many, Tekel Parson, you have been weighed in the balances, God says, and you're about to die. And that night he's assassinated as the Medes and the Persians come in and take over. Now, as you think about these two images, all right, and what we've talked about so far, let me take you out and let you know that these images are coming from Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 and Psalm 8. See what I mean by that? Well, when God created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden, he created them in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. There was a likeness there, and there was a shared partnership. They were to partner with God in ruling on God's behalf. But we know the story. We know how the serpent showed up. And as a result, that Adam and Eve became irresponsible. They didn't want to be responsible to God. They only wanted to be responsible to themselves. And as a result of that, what happens is that when humans rebel and make themselves God, they become beasts. Now, I want you to hang on to that because it's going to become clearer in just a couple of chapters. And when you start talking about the book of Revelation and the mark of the beast and the Antichrist, etc., I want you to keep in mind this concept of beast because it's all being drawn out of the book of Daniel. And that takes us now over to chapter 6. And in chapter 6, here's what we discover. Just like the three Hebrew children were thrown into the furnace, Daniel now is thrown into a den of lions. Why? Because he refuses to stop praying to God. Because he refuses to acknowledge any other ruler other than God. There's no one greater than God. And so he's thrown into the den of lions and Darius, who is kind of tricked into doing this by those who are jealous about Daniel, is worried all night. Is Daniel going to make it or not? Because he knew Daniel was a good man. And in the morning he calls out, he says, Daniel, servant of God, are you still alive? And Daniel says, yes. He said, God sent down an angel to close the mouths of the lions. And Daniel's taken up out of the lion's den, and he too is exalted. Now we come to chapter 7. And chapter 7 is really the center of the book of Daniel. It is where all the themes kind of flow together. And chapter 7 is kind of paired with chapter 2 in the sense that now Daniel has his own dream. He's not interpreting somebody else's dream. He has his own dream, and he doesn't understand what the dream means. And so a heavily agent is going to reveal to him what is going on. Daniel has this dream, and he sees this lion, he sees this bear, he sees this winged leopard, and he sees this monstrosity, a very terrible and evil beast that has these ten horns, and one of the horns 
does away with three and emerges as this very large horn that represents a king. In the, in the Old Testament, horns are always represented power and kings. It's a king who exalts himself above God and persecutes God's people. And then we hear about the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days comes, and there's going to be a time of judgment. It says that the Son of Man also comes on the clouds and is seated next to the Ancient of Days. The Son of Man seems to represent both God's chosen people and also the Messiah. And the beast is judged, and the kingdom reigns forever. And God's people reign with God's Son forever. So if you were Daniel, probably about this point in time, you'd be wondering, so how is all of this going to play out? And that leads us to chapter 8, because in chapter 8, Daniel has a second vision, which is kind of like a tightening up on the vision he had in chapter 7. This time he sees two beasts, we'll call them, that are are a different description of the Medo-Persian Empire and a different description of the Grecian Empire. So he sees a ram, all right, and he sees a goat. The goat is the Greek Empire. The the ram represents the Medo-Persian Empire. And then he sees out of the ram come these horns, right, which we saw in chapter 7, just different imagery. And again comes that massive horn, right? And that represents this evil king who attacks Jerusalem and exalts himself above God. And what happens is he's about to be destroyed by God. So it's, it's very similar to chapter 7. It's just focusing in a little bit more and a different descriptor in terms of animals to speak of speed and to speak of strength, all right? So that takes us to chapter 9, and Daniel's trying to figure out, when is all this going to happen? What's the timing on this whole thing? And so he examines the scroll by Jeremiah, and he's reading in there, and he discovers that, you know, Jerusalem, or I'm sorry, the Jews are going to be in captivity for 70 years, and it's like almost up. 70 years are almost up. But what he discovers is that Israel's sin has continued. There hasn't been a thorough repentance. And as a result of that, They're going to stay in exile and oppression, and it's going to last 70 times 7, 490 years. What happens next is that as Daniel's trying to figure out when is, you know, when is this eventually finally going to culminate, he ends up with this vision that occupies now chapters 10 through chapters 12. It's a repeat of everything that he's already been dreaming about, and that is he sees Persia, he sees Greece, He sees the weakening into lesser kings, and then he sees this big horn, this king of the north who comes in, who tries to destroy the Jews, destroy Jerusalem, exalt himself as God, but in the end, he comes to ruins. So now we're asking ourselves, what in the world does all that mean? What's going on here? How are we supposed to understand the future by all that imagery that you've just breezed right over? Well, I'll be honest with you. Theologians, scholars, Christians have argued and debated the meanings that are attached to all these visions and dreams. And as a result, they've come up with different interpretations. So, for instance, there are some who say that all these visions, these dreams that Daniel had, these 
uh, symbols and, and uh, uh, the numbers, etc., that they had to do with a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, all right, who lived in the 160s. And, I mean, we know from history, he was a horrible, cruel man who tried to destroy the Jewish people. He went into the temple. He established a, a, an idol to Zeus. He sacrificed pig swine's flesh on the altar. I mean, it was, it was bad news. And it was because of the hand of God and the Maccabees who rebelled against him that he was finally ousted out of there. They say, that's it. That's all it's referring to. Others come along and they say, no, it can't be referring just to that. It must be referring to the Roman Empire's destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, where Jesus borrows from Daniel and uses what Daniel has said to refer to that destruction. Others still come along and they say, nope. It doesn't refer necessarily to Antiochus or to the Roman destruction 70 AD. There are certain things that, that, that Daniel dreams and sees and says that can only refer to the events that are yet to happen, and that is when Jesus Christ returns to earth again. The problem, as Dr. Mackey points out, is that in each of these views, you can't make the scriptures necessarily add up to equal just one view. There are, there are too many conflicts in doing that. And so the supposition is, and I, I have always agreed with this, is that in a sense, all the views are right. That is that Daniel is dreaming about his, what we would think of as his immediate future, a little further into the future, and then he's telescoping, God's telescoping way out there, even into your future and my future. And rather than getting hung up on all of these details, which is what makes people not want to talk about prophecy and not want to study prophecy. So getting hung up with all of that, you got to back out from it and say, you know, what are, the, what are the overriding principles that we can take away from this? So for instance, you know, we'll go back to the slide before this. For instance, the book offers hope to all future generations. This is a, this is a book that was meant to offer hope to Daniel's people then and there and to you and to me here and now. Jesus used it to describe Jerusalem's leaders. But also, John picks up on this in the book of Revelation to describe who's going to be around in the end times, both in the time of Rome and then Rome's destruction and then in the future that is yet to come. So we go back out, we look at the great big picture, and what we discover is that the whole point of Daniel is to give us a pattern and a promise for all generations. And the pattern is human beings set themselves up and God tears them down. And one day there's going to be a culmination when humanity comes together to set itself up against God like in Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. And God's going to bring it all down. It'll be done and over with. His kingdom will reign forever. Or to put it another way, human beings become beasts when they don't acknowledge God's kingdom. When they don't acknowledge God and his kingdom. God will one day confront the beast and rescue his world. Now, I just covered an awful lot in a short amount of time. I understand that. Some of it, you may be like, what? I didn't quite get that. You Maybe you'll watch it again, or you're just like, that's just way too confusing for me. So let me stand back from it, and let me just draw out seven principles that you and I can take to heart as we face the future, as we prepare our children and our grandchildren to face the future as well. And these are really important principles. Here's the first one. No matter what happens in your life or in this world, remember that God is in control. 
Look what it says in Daniel chapter 2, verse 24. I'm, I'm sorry, verse 20. He said, praise, Daniel said, praise the name of God forever and ever, for he has all wisdom and power. God has all wisdom. God has all power. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. So no matter what is happening out there and how chaotic it might feel to you and me, as a follower of Christ, you and I can just settle on, stand on, rest on the fact that God is in control. No matter how you feel about our country right now, God is in control. No matter what you think about the world, God is in control. And he's always going to be in control. Second principle. There is no question that we are living in the last days before the return of Christ. That's what I said when we actually began this whole series. Now, we're living in the last days in two ways, I think. Number one, ever since the resurrection of Jesus, we've been in the last days. However, as, and this is only my opinion, my thoughts, okay? However, as I look at where the world is today, I don't think there's ever been such a unified alignment of world powers to be so anti-God and anti-Bible as we see today. Even though we may have different political views from us to China to Iran, and we may have different economies and etc., the one thing that's in common that we're seeing amongst the nations of the world, including our own nation, is this anti-Christ kind of attitude, this anti-Bible kind of spirit. And so sometimes I think that we are actually toward the end of the last days, but that's in God's hands, not yours and not mine. He will come when he's good and ready to come. Remember what the Bible says, he's willing that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. And that for God, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. And actually, your life and my life is very short compared to all of eternity. And that's why it's important that you and I live like Christ could come at any moment, because he could. He could come in the sense that he calls us home. None of us have absolute assurance we'll be alive 24 hours from now. We need to live each day as though it's our last day, because it very well could be. Number three, we are living in a beastly world, and the mark of the beast is the identity issue. Now, this is my, my thoughts coming from the passage and what I see happening in the world, all right? But as I was studying this, I just, I, all of a sudden I realized as I thought about, okay, this, these visions of beasts, these, these dreams of all these beasts, I realized, you know what, if I, if I understand that properly, I can honestly say, say we live in a beastly world. If, if beast represents evil, if beast represents rebellion against God, this is a beastly world. We live in a beastly country where there's so much evil at work, such a rebellious, in-your-face attitude towards God on so many issues, on so many issues. And as I look at that, 
and I see this beastly world and I'm watching what's happening and I see what they tried to do to Daniel. You know, when I think about what's called the mark of the beast, and I, I'm not saying this is the actual interpretation of 666, but when I think about the mark of the beast, I think it comes down to an identity issue. Just like Daniel and the three Hebrew children were being forced to try to change their identity and they refused, I watch what's happening in our culture today, especially in the media and how it's being used to try to change our sense of identity. And that's why I hope you won't miss the next series. I'm going to talk about what does it mean to know who you are and to be secure in who you are, how to find your real identity. But your kids and my kids and our grandkids are facing this huge uh, energy wave that's being kind of pushed at them from the culture to say, you know, you don't have to be who you are. You can be someone else. That your identity should be associated with how you feel or what your peers think of you, not what your parents say, and certainly not what God's word has to say. And so I think this, this whole idea of the mark of the beast is this idea of taking on any identity other than the identity of Christ, the identity of God's children, which leads to number four. Don't make the mistake of trying to overcome one beast by creating another, okay? Don't make the mistake of trying to overcome one beast by creating another. In other words, don't, let's not, as believers, try to fight the world the world's way, which is power. Every time the church marries itself to power, politically speaking, it is a disaster. The early church is doing great until it became the empire's religion, and then power corrupted it, fell apart. Or think about the Puritans when they came to this country and they had the power. What did they do? They began persecuting other Christians. And so every time we marry ourselves to political power, it just, it causes corruption. And the answer to what our nation needs is not political. It is the gospel. And the gospel needs to be unadulterated. It needs to be left outside of that realm, it needs to come through his living church. It needs to come through our words of truth and our actions of love and our grace that we share and we show. History proves that if you try to, in some manner or way, use Christianity to powerfully move people and change people and force people, it just leads to disaster. It just leads to corruption. And I don't think we want to go there. Number five, in these last days, believers have been called to remain faithful. Remember our definition of faithful? We learned from Daniel that is to be responsible and trustworthy. In these last days, believers have been called to remain faithful and spread the hope of the good news. That's our job. That's your job, my job. That's, that's what we have been asked by God to do. That's what we've been entrusted to do. And you know, the Bible tells us that as we spread the gospel to the world, it actually has the capacity to hasten the coming of Christ. Look what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24. He said, and the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it, then the end will come. Now, our church is very much involved, and I thank you for being so involved in all of our campuses those of you who are joining us online, in spreading the gospel here, near, and far. 
And we want to get the gospel into all of the world. We want Christ to return. We want to carry this commission out. So we've partnered with not only our global partners, but especially with with TTI, the Timothy Initiative. You hear a lot about that. And TTI is involved in what is known as Achieve, a church in every village everywhere. And that's why as a church in the next 10 years, our goal is to bring the hope of the gospel into 30,000 villages, establishing 30,000 churches in villages that don't have a church right now. Right now, we know that between Nepal and India, there are 300,000 villages without a church. We're joining a coalition of others to say, let's, let's make sure there's a witness in every one of those communities. You know, if I were to ask you to raise your hand, if there's a church within driving distance of your house right now, I imagine everybody, at least in this country, would raise their hands, perhaps even in walking distance of your house. But you know, if I go to many other parts of the world, especially in Asia, there is no church within a day or two of where a person lives. And there's just no lighthouse. There's no witness there. Do you know that only about 3% of the missionaries go to the unreached places of the world? And that only about 1% of the money given actually ever makes it to the unreached places of the world? Don't you think we need to make sure the gospel gets into every corner of the world so that everyone hears about the love of Christ and listen, so that our Lord will return soon and take us home to be with him. Number six, this is not a time to go it alone as a believer. You know, that's one of the issues with covid that we've experienced and what's going on in our society today is, you know, as people are, are, are doing church on their own. Now, I think there's a, a time and a place for that when you're traveling or when you're really sick or when you're vulnerable to some kind of, you know, sickness that's going around or you're homebound. And I'm glad we can, we can minister that way. But listen, you need the fellowship of other believers. The Bible says, don't forsake the assembly of yourselves together. And so much more as you see the days approaching, meaning the days that Daniel saw. We need each other to keep each other encouraged. We need each other to keep each other accountable. We need each other to uphold each other, which then leads me to the last principle, and that is pray, pray, pray. We've never needed to pray like we need to pray today. It is said that the church marches on its knees, and it's so true. I want to encourage you to pray and pray for our unbelieving friends and neighbors and co-workers and students that somehow they might see the love of Jesus in our life. Somehow they might see a change of life in us that causes them to want to know, why are you so different? How can I have the peace that just seems to pass all understanding that you have? And we get to share with them our story and God's story. Secondly, Pray for one another as believers. Pray that you'll stay strong. Pray that you'll stay pure and holy before the Lord and not compromise this culture. Pray for our students who just face such an onslaught of pressure and temptation not to compromise, but to be willing to stand and even suffer for the sake of the truth. And thirdly, pray against spiritual attacks. You know, The enemy is going to target churches, leaders, believers who really want to pray, serve, share, who really want to make a difference. 
And God has told us that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. So we need to pray for each other, not become confused by the world, not to succumb to the attacks of the world, but to realize that even when we're suffering, it can be one of the greatest witnesses to the world. As we keep our faith and our mind and our hope fixed on Christ, like Daniel did, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did in the book of Daniel. Finally, I would say this to you. Don't think of yourself as a victim, but think of yourself as the victor. Listen, you were born for such a time as this. I was born for such a time as this. Not to retreat, not to run, but have the privilege, as Paul would say, to suffer for and to suffer with Christ, that others may come to know him and experience him, that he would be honored and he would be glorified. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this book of Daniel. And though we don't understand all of the images and the numbers and the things that he saw in his mind that even he struggled to understand, I thank you that there is enough there to give us hope, enough there to cause us to be faithful, enough there, Lord, for us to pack in our toolbox, so to speak, and have available to deal with the future as it comes our way. Lord, help us to be strong. As we move into the message on identity next weekend, Lord, I just pray that we'll be all ears and all mind and all heart to you to find ourselves rooted deeply in Christ and to know what it truly means to have Christ in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, listen, I breeze through those seven points rather quickly, and you might be thinking to yourself, boy, I'd like to see those, those seven points again. If you want to get them, all you have to do is go over to our website, wooddale.org slash past hyphen messages, and there you'll find our small group uh, information, and in that small group are questions, and in that small group uh, information, you'll have those seven points, and then you can uh, take a look at that and... Um, Either write them down for yourself or modify them or pray about them. But I believe that they will be a great help to you and me as we face this world. Hey, God bless you guys. Have a wonderful rest of the weekend and I'll see you next weekend.